morning. Hey, thanks for being here today. Uh, Kids Church, fifth grade and under, you guys are uh, free to go. I know Beth is down there and she's got some helpers waiting for you. And uh, when I was down there seeing what was going on, they've got all kinds of things set up. So it looks like y'all are in for a great time. You guys, on the other hand, you're stuck with me for the next 20, 25 minutes. Hope 25, yeah, like somebody, somebody, 25, that's all? Hey. Hey, again, thanks for being here. If you're watching on Facebook, thanks for joining us. We're so glad that you are a part of our worship service today. And today is the finale of our series that we've been in for a couple of weeks now, Pray Like This. And just to set us up for where we're going today, I want to start with just an observation about human nature. And this isn't a religious thing. This is just a thing. In fact, you've probably experienced this. Uh, maybe you just didn't have the words for it. Maybe you did. And you, once you hear the observation, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, duh. But, but here's the observation. Is that it's human nature to resist things that we can't control or don't understand. It's just human nature to, to resist things that we don't understand. That, that we uh, naturally react to things that we push back on that we can't understand or we don't understand or that we're not used to, uh, things that change. We, we don't like that, so we just naturally push back on those things. And, and look, we want to be open-minded, right? Some of us even pride ourselves on, on our open-mindedness. But, but at the same time, we want to be able to make sense of the world, and, and uh, we want to make sense of things, and we want the world to make sense. And, and our current worldview, whatever your current worldview is, uh, it, it, it's what actually enables you to make sense uh, of the world as you experience it. And when our framework is challenged, that's your worldview, when, you, when your framework is challenged, we naturally just pull up the drawbridge and we cross our arms and, and, and we just become defensive. And we kind of retreat into our own little talking points. And, and, and look, I'm not pointing fingers because this is true of me too, all right? Um, but it's just human nature. It's human nature that we act that way. That, that will explain many of your conversations with your parents when you were in high school or when you went off to college and, and you came back home and you had new ideas and you had all these things you wanted to talk to your parents about. And what did they do? They just naturally resisted. It will explain uh, a significant percentage of your conversations with your own kids. If they're in high school or they're in college, you know, they came home with some new ideas, some new friends, a new tattoo. And, well, you just had to have something to say about it, right? We, we all have paradigms and narratives and prejudices, experience that kind of, kind of lock us into how we see and interpret the world around us. And all of this contributes to, to our resistance, our, our resistance to new things and new ideas and new ways of thinking, and perhaps the most problematic, new people. And let's be honest, I mean, even as I'm saying all of this, perhaps you're, you've kind of crossed your arms and maybe you're not doing that uh, outwardly, because you don't want me to see it, but you know, mentally you, you you cross your arms because you feel like I'm just setting you up to to like tell you that something that you hold dear, I'm getting ready to pull pull the rug out from under you. And I, look, I get it; I would be that way too, because it's just human nature to resist anything new, especially if it conflicts with something old, with something comfortable. And like I said, today we're wrapping up this series, pray like this, and. Many of us, or at least most of us, I think, grew up praying, and many of us were taught as children how to pray, and, and while pretty much everything else grew up about us, our prayers did not grow up. What we asked for has changed, but how we pray and, and why we pray is, is pretty much the same, and if that's the case, and this is important, if that's the case, if they've stayed pretty much the same, then, then basically this, our view of God has remained pretty much the same our entire lives. If 
If you pray the same way that you did as a child, if you think about prayer the same way as you did as a child, then, then your view of God really hasn't changed as you've grown up. It hasn't grown up either. I mean, the way that we pray, what we pray, why we pray, is shaped by our view of God. What we think God is like, what we think God likes. And, and, and those kind of things are all shaped by our view of God. And, and how we pray, or to say it another way, your prayers reflect your view of God. In other words, if we were to stop and evaluate our prayers and just ask ourselves, uh, what, what does the way I pray say about my view of God? We might discover, as we talked a, bit, a little bit about last week, that we might discover that we have really just reduced God to a, a conscience cleaner with a short memory. Consequently, prayer as a result is reduced to, for, for a lot of people, informing God of our needs, our wants, and our wishes. Or perhaps the needs, wants, and wishes of somebody that you care about. That's why we pray. That's why we've been taught to pray. The point being, if, if you want to know how you view God, or if you want to understand your view of God, just listen to the way that you pray. Just listen to the words of your prayers. If you want to understand how you view God. Then, then along comes Jesus, and, and he says to his first century followers, he says, Hey, hey guys, a um, little bad news. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> and you've been doing it wrong. In fact, as we've discovered in this series, perhaps maybe he's been saying that to some of us, that, hey, you've been praying your whole life, but, but it's time that your prayers grow up because you've been doing it wrong. And, and Jesus says this. He says, this then is how you should pray. And so in the first uh, three messages of this series, we discovered that God is not merely a conscience cleaner, that he's not just somebody that sweeps our, our sins under the rug and we can ask forgiveness and, and he just poof magically forgets about all of it. We, we've discovered that more importantly we've discovered the purpose of prayer that the purpose of prayer is to uh, not impose our will but to align our will with God's will that, that we would be surrendered to his will and look I'm not going to recap everything that we've talked about for the last three weeks you can catch that on on our podcast or on Facebook or or on our website but but I want to just leave all that there just to to get us to where we're going today because what we're going to talk about today is a, is a significant encounter there, there and a couple of them actually there, there's a really interesting encounter between Jesus and, and his apostles, and it's powerful because it's emotional. And, and here's what happened. Philip, one of the 12 disciples, he's sitting around with the other disciples, and Jesus, uh, and they're all there. They're, they're probably having supper. They've probably caught some fish, and, and they're just they're talking. And, and Jesus is doing that thing that Jesus does where he's not real super clear about the things that he's saying, and the disciples, they're, you know, let's be honest, they, they didn't always get what Jesus was trying to say. Most of what he said went over their heads. And, and Philip, is he's just kind of had it with that. He, he's really frustrated with Jesus, and, and which I find comforting. You ever been frustrated with God? I mean, Philip, one of the 12 disciples, is having a conversation with Jesus, and he's frustrated with Jesus. So I find that comforting, and if you've ever been frustrated with Jesus you're in good company but he, he's frustrated with Jesus and finally he just works out hey Jesus uh, enough with the, the the analogies enough with the parables enough with this with the stories just show us the father Jesus show us the father and do you remember what what Philip's or what Jesus responded to Philip's uh statement there Jesus says don't you know me Philip which is an interesting response to Philip's statement of show us the father he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? And then these extraordinary words, who would say this unless you were God? He would say, anyone who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. In other words, Philip, 
You will never get any closer to your understanding of what God is like than me. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God likes? Do you want to know anything about God? If you do, then follow me. Follow Jesus. But when you follow Jesus as they discovered, and hopefully we are discovering as well, when you follow Jesus through the Gospels and when you follow him through his life, it will require some change. It will require us to give up some of our assumptions, perhaps some of the things that we have believed our entire lives. And that's difficult to do. It's, it's difficult to do because, well, it's just human nature to resist things that we can't control or things that we just don't understand. And this explains why, why every first century religious leader resisted Jesus. In fact, it's, it's why pretty much everybody in his first century audience misunderstood Jesus, even though they thought right up to the very end that they had Jesus all figured out. They'd been with Jesus for three years, and they thought they knew what God was up to. They thought they knew what Jesus was, was up to. They thought they knew what God was about. But they had some unlearning to do. They had some growing up to do. In fact, Luke tells us that just the day before they entered Jerusalem, just the day before Jesus is, is going to have his date with destiny where he's going to die for the sins of the world, Here's what he says to him. He says, you know, guys, disciples, I want you to understand that uh, uh, what's about to happen. I'm getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and, and you're going to see everything that's been written about the Son of Man. You're going to see all of those things fulfilled. You're going to see prophecy fulfilled, in which they kind of thought, well, hey, that's, that's probably pretty exciting. Right? We're going to see prophecy fulfilled? How cool is that? Well, maybe not. Because Jesus was talking about what he was getting ready to experience where he's going to be turned over to the Romans and they're going to mock him and they're going to spit on him and they're going to beat him and they're going to flog him and eventually they're going to kill him. And if the disciples, if they'd been listening carefully, here's how they should have responded. This is what they should have said if they'd been paying attention to what Jesus was saying. They, they probably should have said, hey Jesus, you know what? You go on into Jerusalem without us. That's not what I signed up for. You go on into Jerusalem, and you can experience all that, and we'll just hang back here, and we'll just say, hey, you know, it was, nice. It was a nice three-year run. See you later. But they didn't do that, did they? They followed him anyway, and not because they were brave. We, we know they weren't brave. They followed Jesus because, well, well, I'll let Luke tell you why. They followed him anyway because Luke says the disciples did not understand anything that Jesus had just said. They didn't get any of it. He says its meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Now Jesus' message wasn't unintelligible. He wasn't speaking to them in a foreign language that they didn't know. He used words in a language that they knew. He was crystal clear about what he was, what he was talking about. The problem was the disciples, their preconceived messianic expectations, their assumptions about Jesus made them unable to hear or to really accept what he was saying. Their assumptions about Jesus were so, they were so locked in, well, they locked him out. They couldn't hear, they couldn't see, because they thought they already knew. And again, that's understandable. It's understandable. The narrative that they were raised on, think about this. The, the, what they had been grown up with, you know, this idea of a restored kingdom, their, their experiences growing up under the Roman rule, a limited, but albeit mostly incorrect way uh, of thinking about how the ancient world happened and existed, and, and all this superstition that it was filled with. All of these things made it next to impossible for them, for them to hear what Jesus was actually saying. And it made it next to impossible for them to see the future that he was pointing towards. All of these things combined made it, made it difficult for them to accept what God was up to in their world right before their very own eyes. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. They thought they knew, but they were wrong. 
Imagine this, after three years of following Jesus, of listening and talking with Jesus and camping out with Jesus, they're still arguing about which one of them is going to be number two and number three in the cabinet of Jesus when he sets up his kingdom. In fact, just a few days uh, before they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem, they find out that a Samaritan village uh, wasn't willing to host them overnight because they were Galilean. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him for permission to call down fire from heaven and devour the, everybody in the village. I mean, think about that. That's, that's what the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, that, that's their mindset. Hey, these people won't host us. Jesus, you're getting ready to be king. We know you've got some connection to God in heaven, so let us call down fire and just get rid of these people. That's what they thought. I mean, there is no getting around the fact that it took, it wasn't until after the resurrection. It wasn't until after all of those things happened that the pieces finally started coming together for the men who were eyeball to eyeball with Jesus for three years. And, and, then, and then it would take another 20 years. Don't miss this. It would take another 20 years in the conversion of Saul and a big church council and hundreds of Gentile converts before this group finally understood that, that this Jesus that they followed, he, that he came for the entire world. That this good news, this good story was for everybody, not just them. It would take 20 more years before they would finally get the, embrace the implications of this new command that Jesus had told them that by, by this, by, by this love, everyone will know that you're my follower. But eventually, eventually they got it. Eventually they got it. And, and if you're a Christian, and I'm assuming that most of us in this room are Christians because that's why we're here. That should fill you with some concern. Perhaps some trepidation. Certainly a big dose of humility. It certainly does me. That should take the edge off of any theological smugness or any arrogance any of us might have, right? It should cause all of us to wonder, where do we have it wrong? Where do I have it wrong? Where, where do we have Jesus wrong? Where have we missed Him or misunderstood Him? I mean, who am I to think that I have it all figured out when the men and women who were face-to-face with Jesus, who so oftentimes did not understand what He was trying to communicate? I mean, we would be actually be better off waking up every day and approaching God with, with, and every single day and approaching every relationship and every decision with our hands and our hearts wide open to the reality that we only know what we know and there is a lot that we don't know. That, that we can only see what we can see and that possibly there's more to be seen. Or to borrow from Old Testament prophet Micah, that we should determine every, simple, every single day to simply act justly. And to love mercy. And then here's the big one. The virtue that every New Testament author writes and and Jesus highlights as well. That we should walk humbly. That we should walk humbly with our our God. According to Micah, that's all that the Lord requires of us. And it should be no surprise that that's what Jesus requires of us as well. Because it's what He did. He, He walked humbly with His God. Here's how He said it. He said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Here, here it is. There's that idea again. Not my will, but thy will. And then there's this. And this is why we should all walk in humility when it comes to our understanding of, of who God is and our understanding of Jesus and what God might be up to in, in this world. Because throughout the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, we are introduced to people who, who find themselves in the presence of Jesus. Okay, not just the disciples, but, they, but, but other people. And they find themselves in the presence of Jesus and they can't actually see Him. 
they can't accept him for who he actually is. And again, it wasn't just the disciples. I mean, there's all kinds of people, you know, one day a, a wealthy young ruler, a wealthy young man, you probably heard this story. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus extends to him the opportunity of a lifetime. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and sell all that you own. Have a, have a yard sale. Have a pop-up sale. Whatever you need to do. But get rid of everything that you own. Sell it. Take all that money and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. But then here was the real invitation. He says, then I want you to come and follow me. And not follow me like you and I think about follow Je following Jesus in the 21st century. I mean, like, follow me, like, actually go where I'm going. Like, be a part of my crew, be a part of my, my inner circle. You can, you can do that. In other words, young man, if you want to see eternal life, you don't have to wait until you die. You can follow me now to Jerusalem, and you'll see God's plan unfold before your very eyes. But this rich young man, he couldn't see beyond his wealth. He couldn't see beyond his wealth, and consequently, we don't even know his name. Think about that. Think about this. It's one of the most, most uh, told stories in all of Scripture, right? He couldn't see beyond his wealth, and because he couldn't see beyond his wealth, we don't even know his name. He's just a footnote in history. There was a Jewish teacher, Nicodemus, that most of us are probably familiar with. He almost missed Jesus because he couldn't see past his theology. The, the theology that he, was, that he was raised on, that he had built his re reputation on, which is understandable. Let me just tell you, it takes an enormous, enormous amount of humility to abandon a, an idea or an agenda or a political pers persuasion or, or perhaps a perspective that we built our public reputation on. It, it's difficult to see or to recognize the truth when, when the truth threatens our standing in the community or, or our reputation or maybe even more importantly to most of us, our income. The Pharisees and the other Pharisees, they couldn't see beyond their prejudices toward, toward certain kinds of people. We, we run into this throughout the life of Jesus. Their, their thought, the Pharisees, they, their thought was something like this. Jesus could not possibly be from God because of who he associates with. He hangs out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And by the way, they, they ranked them in that order. That, that's, that was the order of, of acceptance. You sinner, prostitute, tax collector, tax collector, worst of the worst. And they thought, we know this because we understand God, right? We understand God would never send someone that would represent Him and associate with, with these kind of people. And then when they found out that Jesus went to the home of Matthew, the tax collector, I mean, you want to talk about front page news. Minds blown. They had no category for this. They, they could not reconcile his claims to be from God and his behavior. He claimed to be from God, but he associated with sinners. He associated with prostitutes. And worst of all, he associated with tax collectors. They thought they had God all figured out. On another occasion, a Pharisee named Simon actually invites Jesus into his home and for a meal. And Jesus, being an equal opportunity offender, he says, all right, I'll go. Which probably frustrated the, those that followed Jesus because, I mean... They were, they were kind of like, hey, you, you talk about the Pharisees, you, and now you're going to eat with them. Like, you can't have it both ways, right? Jesus, you be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm, which is actually something that Jesus said. But anyway, Jesus accepts Simon the Pharisee's invitation to, to his home. And while he's there, a woman who's considered a sinner by the temple leaders took the role of, of servant. And she washes his feet with her tears and, and her perfume. And it should be noted that this particular woman... Um, she could have been labeled or branded a sinner in that culture for any number of reasons. I think there was one specific reason why they labeled her this, but any number of reasons. 
But, but anyway, back to the story. His, his host Simon is sitting across the table. He's sitting across the table from the Son of God. Think about this. And his prejudice, his preconceived, his ill-conceived assumptions about who God favors blinds him to who is visiting him in his home. And when it was clear that Jesus wasn't offended by the woman's proximity or by her touch, Simon thought to himself, which is just always a mistake when you're in the presence of Jesus, he thought to himself, he thought, if, if this man were a prophet, if he were really a prophet, translated, meaning, I know for a fact how this works, and because this doesn't line up with the way that I think it should, it doesn't line up at all. There's no way that he's a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he would see this woman the way that I see her. He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And so Jesus does the Jesus thing where he smiles. And then he tells Simon and everyone at the table a parable. And at the end of this parable, essentially this is what he says. He says, Simon, this woman, that you can't see what this woman sees. You can't see what this woman sees because you refuse to see. You, you, you can't see past your flawed frame of reference. You can't see past your self-righteousness. But this woman, this woman, she doesn't have her pride locked in. Simon, your pride has, has locked you in and it's locked me out. But this woman, she sees what you can't because she recognizes me. She, she sees her failure and her limitations, her, her sin. So she recognizes me. And then maybe just to stir things up a little bit. I think Jesus was always good about that. Jesus turns to this woman and he says the unsayable thing. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And and the response of Simon and the other guests uh, around the table, it underscores their inability to see who is sitting at the table with them. And so they they ask a question. And honestly, it's a question that I hope everybody would ask at some point in their life. They ask, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sin? And let me just tell you, that's a great question. That, that, that in fact, that's the question. But they didn't know. But she did. They didn't recognize him. But she did. And so the question for us is, is, do you? Do you recognize Jesus? Do I recognize Jesus? Because the thing is, we're all so quick to judge uh, these, all these narrow-minded ancient people, but, but we shouldn't be. Let me just tell you, that's, that's just arrogance. That, that's just arrogance that potentially camouflages our own blindness uh, and, and their inability to see and understand while in the presence of Jesus. Jesus should cause all of us to retreat to a posture of open hands and open heart because who are we to say that we understand everything about Jesus when these people who were right there with him for so long, so oftentimes didn't? They didn't get it. So who's to say that we always get it right? And so today I just want to suggest a short prayer as we, as we wrap up this series about prayer. I want to suggest a short prayer to add to our current prayer routine. It's not original with me, okay? You need to know that. The psalmist had a version of it. The Old Testament prophets had a version of it. Bart had a version of it. And honestly, I like Bart's version the best because it's short and it gets right to the point. And and just like Jesus' disciples, Bart had a first-hand encounter with Jesus. This encounter that that Bart has with Jesus, it takes place on Jesus' final leg of his journey to Jerusalem. He passes through the city of Jericho. It's about 18 miles east of Jerusalem. And here's what happened. As Jesus is approaching Jericho, a blind man sitting by the roadside and he's begging because that's how he made his living. And Mark tells us that his name is Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus, you've probably heard of him. 
And when, and when Bartimaeus, when blind Bartimaeus heard what the crowd going by, he says, hey, hey, what's going on? Somebody fill me in. Obviously, I can't see what's happening, so somebody tell me what's happening. And they told him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And Bartimaeus had probably heard all the stories about Jesus. He probably heard about all the miracles that Jesus had done. And so he instantly recognizes, hey, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. And so he sets aside whatever pride he might have had left, and he calls out as loud as he could, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have, have mercy on me. And it says, and those who, who led the way, they rebuked him. And they said, hey, be quiet. Quiet down over there. But he shouted all the more. And I love what happens next. Jesus is on his way. Think about this. Jesus is on his way to do the most important appointment ever, to pay for the sins of the world. This is his date with destiny. This is the whole reason why he came to earth. But he stopped. He stops and he orders that Bartimaeus be brought to him. And that's amazing and it's convincing and convicting and it's inspiring. Because when we decide to follow Jesus from time to time, we stop. And when Jesus came near, he asked Bartimaeus, he said, he asked him a, a funny, but I, I, think, uh, I think an intentional question. He says to Bartimaeus, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Which is a strange question to ask. It's a strange question for a miracle worker to ask a blind person. What do you want me to do for me? It's kind of obvious, right? What do you want me to do for you? But I think maybe he asked that, that question for, for the benefit of those around and, and even perhaps for our benefit. So what follows is Bartimaeus' prayer. It's short, it's sweet, it's right to the point. And when you read his answer to this question, what can I do for you? It might not strike you as a prayer, but, but, because, but it is. Because what is prayer? As, as that quartet just sang, what is prayer? It's, it's just a little talk with, with Jesus, right? It's just a little talk with the Lord. It's making our request known to God. And so that's exactly what our friend Bartimaeus does. He responds and he says, Lord... Lord, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. Bartimaeus, what can I do for you? Lord, I want to see. Let me ask you, do you want to see? Do you want to see? Do you, do you want to see what you currently can't see? Do you want to see, even if it requires of you letting go of something? Do you want to see, even if it requires giving up something? Even if it requires admitting that you were wrong about something? Or do you just want to be right? Even if it doesn't feel right? Do you want to see? Just tell you, most people don't want to. Most people want to, don't, don't want to see. But Jesus says to Bartimaeus, he says, receive your sight because your faith has healed you. And immediately, immediately he received his sight. And immediately, and I love this part, immediately Bartimaeus did what so many others in the New Testament failed to do. Who, who couldn't see beyond their, their reputation, who couldn't see beyond their wealth, who couldn't see beyond their, their theology, behind their ideology. He did immediately what so many people in the New Testament refused to do. The text says that he followed Jesus to Jerusalem. And he saw. He saw. Think about it. He's been blind. He's been blind his whole life, we think. And now he's gotten his sight back. And just, just days after he's gotten his sight back, he saw what we would long to be able to go back and see. The events that would unfold to become the salvation of the world. Bartimaeus saw that. This is the prayer. This is the prayer. Lord, I want to see. Lord, I want to see because seeing is clarifying seeing is clarifying but the problem is is that we've resisted it sometimes because it's terrifying 
Seeing is often terrifying because it usually requires something of us. It, it requires compassion, an apology, forgiveness, restoration, admitting that we were wrong. But the alternative to that is to live and to walk in the dark. Worse, if we're, if we're not willing to see, we might miss Jesus. We will certainly misinterpret Jesus. Or worse, we might, like Judas, attempt to use Jesus. And look, as we've discussed throughout this series, the purpose of prayer is not to bend or to woo God in our direction. The purpose of prayer is to align our wills with His will. And it becomes so much easier when we see the world and we see people in the world the way that Jesus does. It becomes easier when we see ourselves the way that Jesus does. Lord, I want to see. Lord, help me to see. But as you know, there are multiple things that keep us in the dark. Three things in particular that I, that I want to make you aware of as, as we wrap up. Three in particular. Number one is our past. Secondly, it's our personality. And third is our prejudices. These three things in particular have a tendency to color and to distort our ability to, to interpret the world around us accurately. Our past, it's, it's basically it's the sum of all of our experiences. It's our upbringing, our, our religion, our joys, our sorrows, our privilege, our pain. It's all of those things. Our, our personalities, it's the way that we're wired. It's our temperaments, our, our Enneagram numbers. It's just the way that we are, and it becomes a filter for, for us. It, it becomes a filter. It makes it difficult sometimes to see clearly. And then, of course, our prejudices, the things that we prefer. And I get you might not like that word often because of it's often connected to our past. But it's how we were treated. It's how we saw other people treated. Acknowledging our prejudices, the things that we just naturally like and don't like, it's imperative for Jesus followers because we can't love well until we see clearly. Don't miss that. We cannot love well until we see clearly, until we see people the way that God sees people, until we see ourselves the way that God sees us. And these are the lenses through which we see and interpret the world within our context of faith. And these three things, our, our, our past, our personality, and our prejudices, they have the potential to create a distorted version of our faith. They have the potential to create an unchristlike Christianity. And so here's what I want you to do this week. This week, I want, you, I, I want to challenge you to pray the Bartimaeus prayer. First thing in the morning, throughout the day, when you're tempted to close your hands in anger or frustration, somebody's just getting on your nerves and you're thinking, it's Throat Punch Thursday coming. You know, look, I get it. When, when you're worried, when you're afraid, when you're tempted, I'm going to pray this prayer when I'm going to umpire baseball games. Heavenly Father, I want to see. Coaches want me to pray that prayer, right? I want to see. Help me to see. Help me to see as you see. Help me to see him. Help me to see her. Help me to see them. Help me to see you as you see so that I will respond in a way that will honor you. And Heavenly Father, enable me. Enable me to see beyond uh, my past and beyond my personality and certainly beyond my prejudices. Heavenly Father, I want to see. I don't want to walk in the dark. I don't want to walk in the dark. I stub my toes in the dark. Nobody wants to walk in the dark. Heavenly Father, I want to see. Look, it's human nature. It's human nature to resist things that we can't control and that we don't understand. It's human nature to hold on to what's comfortable. But listen, listen to me on this. Following Jesus requires movement. It requires growth. It requires change. It eventually requires us to let go of what's comfortable and to let go of comfortable ways of thinking. It requires us to let go of comfortable assumptions and prejudices and beliefs. But I'm telling you, there's a promise attached here. 
In fact, Jesus summarizes the promise in a way that I would imagine you've heard before. The front end of this promise is, is this. Here's what he says. He says, if you will hold to my teaching, if you will cling to my teaching, even when it conflicts with what you were raised on, even when it's, when it's uncomfortable to you, even when it conflicts with what you were raised to, to assume about the world and the people in your world, if you will embrace my teaching, here's the promise. He says, if you'll hold on to that, you really are my followers. And then you'll know the truth. And here's the promise. And the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth will allow you to see as I really am. The truth will, will set you free to see the world as it really is. The truth will set you free to see people around you. The people that you, that you like and the people that you don't get along with. The people that you hope you don't run into. You'll be able to see clearly. And you'll be able to see them the way that Jesus sees them. And he says, and there's, there's one more thing. He says, if the Son, if the Son sets you free, if you allow me to set you free, Jesus would say, if you'll cling to my teachings and you know the truth and you're set free, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free to see as your Heavenly Father sees. So one more time. Do you want to see? Do you want to see? Now seeing what we've been un unable to see, or what we've been unwilling to see. As we said, it requires humility. It requires living with open minds and open hands and open hearts. But as Jesus followers, we should be so good at that. We should be so good at, at this that we would never resist. That we would never resist uh, that opportunity. And prayer. Prayer the way that Jesus invited us to pray. It actually, it actually sets us up for this. A, a thy will be done posture in our prayer. A thy will be done kind of prayer. It, it breaks down our resistance and it breaks down our pride. And ultimately it breaks down our stubbornness and it allows us to see. So do you want to see? Do you want to see? I'd love to pray for us right now.